Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross. For 80 years, Capital Blue Cross has offered products that provide peace of mind and promote good health. Focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like its Capital Blue Health and Wellness Centers that provide in-person service and inspire healthy living. Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross. Live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, committed to reducing hospital-acquired infections and readmission rates. More information on UPMC Pinnacle's achievements in patient safety can be found at upmcpinnacle.com quality. I'm Scott Lamar, and welcome to a Smart Talk road trip today. We are coming to you live from the historic Boobies Brewery in Mount Joy. We're actually underground broadcasting from the Catacombs Restaurant, and I have to say that this is probably the most unique location I've ever broadcasted from, and I'm certain that uh, we've ever the most unique location for a Smart Talk road trip. We'll talk more about that. But over the next hour, we'll be talking about the history of this 140-year-old, and really it is a destination in central Pennsylvania. We'll also discuss the history of brewing in Pennsylvania, bring you up to date with craft brews and finally ask the question is boobies haunted by ghosts as we get closer to the halloween season we'll share some ghost stories from boobies and talk about the paranormal but up front i'm joined by sam allen the owners of boobies brewery mr allen thank you very much for having us today good day (laughs) i I, you know i have to i have to start off by you know i describe boobies as a destination Mm -hmm. why is it a destination well the main thing I like to point out about the place that makes it distinctive, because it's not the biggest or the oldest or anything like that, it's just the only brewery from the 1800s that still looks like it did in the 1800s. Um, that's just not common. There, there, there were hundreds of little breweries in the days before refrigeration. You didn't have big breweries shipping beer on refrigerated trucks halfway across the country. You had neighborhood breweries and town breweries and like some people remember dairies like that. I, I'm old enough to remember, oh, I remember small that. local dairies. Yeah. yeah. Well, way back when, even further, before Prohibition, there were small local breweries, especially in a German settled area. Everybody, a brewery was, uh, and beer was a staple. People drank beer as part of their diet, and uh, they <laughs> liked it. Don't, don't get me wrong, they, they enjoyed it. Um, but they, it was much more, it was looked at differently than now. It was, now we look at it more maybe recreationally, you might say, but back then they, they counted on beer as part of their part of their nutrition. So a local brewery was very integral to an area, and you didn't ship beer much further than a horse and wagon could take it in a day, which is about 20 miles. That's about the market radius of this brewery uh, back in the 1800s. So if folks are from around here, they might know her Mannheim or Columbia, Elizabethtown, Hummelstown. Hershey didn't even exist yet, but they went uh, as far as uh, Hummelstown, uh, the beer from here. Uh, So where we are in the catacombs, Mm -hmm. and I don't know. How would you describe the catacombs? Because you told me that this used to be a cave. Right, yes. But what did they, did they do to it back in the 1800s to make it so that uh, the beer could be stored here? Well, the cave needed to be stabilized, basically, and they wanted to make it expand the size of the cave. Um, uh, Booby's Brewery is at this spot because there's a natural cave here. This area has a lot of limestone, and, and there are a lot of limestone natural caverns, that many of which are hidden. But this one was fairly near the surface. So it was near a small town, and they knew the man who owned this property before Mr. Booby knew he wanted to save this piece of property to put a brewery on here because it had a cave near the surface. It was a good spot for a brewery. So uh, in the days before refrigeration, the, the cellar was where you stored and aged your beer. And uh, we think in the very early years, when they didn't have a lot of money yet, you know, small businesses getting started, <laughs> nothing's changed there, uh, that they used the cave the way they found it, maybe just leveled the floor and started fermenting and aging or lagering their beer down here. But then in, uh, as the brewery got ex- expanded, somewhere around 1880 or so, we believe they didn't record the year they did this, but they dug the cave out much larger and then started lining it with stone. Uh, the wall behind where we're sitting was solid rock, so they didn't have to cover that. But all these other walls and ceiling and uh, around would, had to be lined and stabilized. These walls are two to three feet thick. And I like to tell people when they're looking at this that uh, if you know what a keystone is, that's the wedge-shaped stone above a doorway or a window arch in a building. 
Well, this is a vaulted arch. The whole room is an arch, and I don't want to get anybody that's sitting here nervous, but <laughs> it's not California. Don't worry. We don't think we'll have an earthquake. But uh, there are hundreds of wedge-shaped rocks over our heads right now, and that's what keeps them up there. They're wedge-shaped. And that when they laid them in, they had to hold them up as it's being built. But once it was in place, they had a stable, stone-lined underground room that was nice and cool for aging their beer. And I just have to add at this point that, uh, as I said, this is the most unique location we've done a live broadcast <laughs> from. It's also beautiful. Uh, behind us in that solid rock that uh, you described are candles. We have candles on the table here. I encourage you to go to our website, org and see some of the photographs mm-hmm. of uh, today's broadcast because it is just absolutely gorgeous. Being here in person and even the photographs, I'm sure, will be the same way. You used the word lager. That is something today that uh, us beer drinkers mm-hmm. are used to hearing so often. But there's a reason that lager became lager. Mm-hmm. Tell me about it. Well, uh, in your next segment, these guys will perhaps go into what we're doing we're with the place now. Brewing, right. uh, now. But uh, going back in history, throughout history, what people made since uh, ancient Mesopotamia, when uh, the people of the Holy Lands would store, make a grain beverage as, as part of their staple diet. They, they harvest grain and sometimes stored it in liquid and, and made a beverage that they could drink. Well, when that beverage fermented, they had beer, and that goes back thousands of years. Uh, and we call that beer they were making, essentially, we call that ale. Uh, and ale, everyone's heard of ale, but maybe not everyone realizes that there are two major kinds of beer, and ale was the only one for most of history. Well, in the Middle Ages, uh, some monks in the monasteries of southern Germany started experimenting, as monks often do with interesting things like alcoholic beverages. Uh, and, uh, Did they, they still uh, do that? <laughs> they, had, they had the time and the motivation, so I, I think you it's kind of You had to stay fun. quiet, so, you know. <laughs> and uh, one thing they had under, mo- under large monasteries is large cellars, which is not a coincidence that we're sitting in a cellar here in a brewery of this uh, nature. But the... Uh, the monks started using a different kind of yeast, and they noticed that this beer they made with this different kind of yeast, it fermented a little more slowly and better when it was fermented in their cellar. And then they noticed if they made a big batch and stored some of it, that it tasted better after two months. It just it was, They noticed that that was distinctly better, and this is something you don't do with ale. But the word for store in German, in this sense, is lager. That's, uh, when you lager something, you're storing it. This that we're sitting in is a lagering cellar. It's meant to imitate the, uh, the big cellar underneath the monastery where they would have kept their beer cool for a couple of months and let it age. And that's what we're in right now. We're in a so lagering cellar. that ties us to Mr. Booby and yes. Mr. Booby coming to America. Tell mm. me about that. Uh, America didn't... Lager beer was only in southern Germany that I was talking about for 500 years, the Middle Ages up until maybe the mid-1800s. And one of the unique things about our country is that people come here from everywhere. Uh, Lager beer brewers from southern Germany didn't even go to northern Germany or anywhere else. They were just in mid to southern Germany for centuries. And that was the beer of that area. If you went some other where else, to Belgium or Ireland, you were drinking ale. Well... In the, around the 1850s, you guys might be able to help me with this, uh, some, in Philadelphia, uh, I think uh, some lager beer breweries, brewers found their way over here, decided to start making lager beer. They had to get lager yeast from back in Germany. That was a trick getting it over here because they still had to come by boat, and it had to last for six or eight weeks or however long it took. And uh, they began brewing in about the 1850s with lager yeast and made lager beer. And at first, what started as a trickle, uh, but there were a lot of Germans in this country by then, right. uh, turned into a flood. Uh, it just became a sensation. Um, it was a fad, uh, this new beer. This new beer was, instead of being warm and cloudy looking, it was cool and clear. And it was cellar-aged, and you could see through it, which was new and, and very enticing for people. They, they, they thought this was great. Now, we're used to cold beer now, but in 1800, you didn't drink a cold beer. You just drank beer at room temperature. That's, and they had done that forever. But this cool, clear beer became uh, all the rage. So the word got back to Germany, to young brew apprentices. Hey, Americans love this beer we've been making here. It's our beer, we've always made, they want it. So instead of going anywhere else, they came to America first, populated the country. There were lager beer breweries in Texas and Oregon, you know, everywhere. Uh, but here in the Northeast, there were the vast majority of them. And uh, this is just one of those. But I like to tell people in context, Mr. Booby's contemporaries had names like uh, Adolphus Bush, uh, Adolf Coors, uh, Friedrich Miller. 
Friedrich Pabst. Uh, these were contemporaries of Mr. Booby. Young guys came from Germany, wanted to make beer in this country. And uh, just the one, what makes our place unique is it still looks like when Mr. Booby was here. Mr. Mr. Miller's Brewery and Mr. Coors Brewery don't look like they a little, did. A little bit different. <laughs> they look a little, a little different, different now. <laughs> but they, when they started their breweries, they looked much like this. Mm. This is what they started with. So Mr. Booby came to America to make lager beer. Mm-hmm. How did he come upon uh, this location? Well, he came as an apprentice. He was only 18. He came to Lancaster first, worked at a, the Knapp, Lawrence Knapp Brewery in Lancaster for several years. And uh, uh, he somehow got connected with a man named Philip Frank, who owned this, what was then a tiny brewery. Philip Frank found himself in the malting business, which was kind of a new business. And most brewers back in the old days malted their own grain and then made beer with it. Well, malted grain can be shipped anywhere because it's not a refrigerated product. So uh, Mr. Frank started making his fortune by making more and more malted grain. He was selling it to brewers that didn't have to do that step, which was real handy. Brewers, most brewers don't malt their own grain anymore. Uh, and that's when this started. And Mr. Frank, uh, his big malt factory is right across the street from here. His big house was right across the street this way. Well, Mr. Booby got hooked up with him. And we think Mr. Frank was looking for a... Uh, an ambitious young man to run his brewery, this little brewery that he had here that he no longer wanted to run himself, and Mr. Booby became that fellow. And then uh, Mr. Booby expanded the brewery several times with Mr. Frank's help. Uh, Mr. Frank financed him several times, but Mr. Booby built a really nice brewery here. So it was, and that was often the way the Germans are. Lots of people that came to this country came first find you know relatives or or folks from their own country to to connect with sometimes get financed by and establish their businesses that's mm-hmm. a very american thing now once that happened well somebody went to uh, mexico and started making corona well that's a lager beer but it wasn't made by mexicans originally that is a german mm-hmm. germans went to every anywhere lager beer is in the world some german went there and got that started. Yeah. There, there's, there's, if you're drinking a Japanese lager or an Indian from India lager, or you know, that's all started with some German See, that went there and taught them. We, we try to teach on Smart Talk or educate on Smart Talk. <laughs> Just think of the things we learned today. Yeah. Um, so, as you said, uh, Mr. Booby came here for the brewery, but it became a lot more. Uh, there was a hotel, and and I eventually want to come up to today everything yeah. that uh, that you're offering but this was a central location in mount joy the railroad went right the main line of the philadelphia uh, pennsylvania railroad went through mount joy and all the way to pittsburgh and uh right here on market street which was the center of town uh, it was a kind of a perfect location because where the caves were to make the brewery it was also a good opportunity to build the hotel and be right across from the train station of town which every little town in the old days had a train station uh, train station had a hotel right across mm-hmm. the street that's just the way you did it and this was the train st- the hotel next to the mount joy train station at the time and there's still was, a railroad and, tracks right by uh, that you cross over if you're coming from uh, main street they are the original little piece of the mm-hmm. old uh, main line it, the main line still goes out to pittsburgh in through town but they moved it over in mm-hmm. 1895 i think but, all right yeah. so let's come to 2017 i know i'm mm-hmm. skipping 140 That's years okay. on you no problem. but uh one of the things that does make boobies uh unique is that it is not just the catacombs uh, there are several eateries here mm-hmm. almost different restaurants yes. uh, under one roof or under a couple roofs mm-hmm. actually uh and a lot of different activities that that you're offering talk about that how did it expand and what what is under these roofs well, a fun thing about our place is it's an, been an ever changing experiment of how to take an historic building and make it continue to work somehow an obvious thing with an old building is to make it into a museum that's that's fine and that, and we essentially are a bit of a museum here but in 1880 if you come to this place you could have bought a beer you could have bought a meal and you could have stayed overnight well that's they had lodging brewing and 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 restaurant well that's what we're doing now we're we're still feeding people we're making beer for them and we lodge them too here uh in the old hotel and by the way a brewery of this period almost always had a hotel attached to it anyway because uh, way back in the old days, the brewing business grew out of the innkeeping business because an innkeeper usually brewed beer out back of the inn for the guests that were stopping at the inn. It was Mm. typical to make your own beer at an inn uh, in the days when it was much more common to make your own beer. Uh, But anyway, so that relationship still existed here in 1880, 1890 when this place got going. So that's how it became a restaurant and, and a lodging facility. And so over the years, just trying to make an old, 
building viable, we, we're constantly and still experimenting with what to do with it. So the old hotel, we have lodging in it. Uh, we have a ballroom there where we do group functions. Uh, the original restaurant of the hotel is the first floor where these folks just, you know, got started today. Um, the dining room's there. We use for murder mystery dinners. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we do that on Saturday nights and other nights, and we do private groups quite frequently to do this sort of thing. And then uh, the different parts of the place, the Cooper's Shed, which is the barrel-making shop. Uh, our brewer grinds grain up there, and on the other part of it, we serve dinner up there. <laughs> uh, the old Bottling Works is our pub. We do live music there. We serve food there. Uh, we, we do trivia on Tuesday, and we do you know karaoke on Sunday, stuff like that. Just Again, just adapting the old building, trying to find a way to make this place viable. You know, when you build a new place at the mall, you build it for what it's meant to be. Here right. we're constantly adapting what we have to what to creative ideas of what to do with it. The outdoor wagon yard, where in the days of a place like this, you had to have room for horses and wagons and, and uh, you know, a barn for the horses and place to store the hay because a, a hotel and a brewery, the brewery needed horses and wagons to deliver the beer, and they needed uh, horse delivery for the hotel guests. So the old wagon yard is now our beer garden. You can sit outside. We, can, you know, we serve food. We do weddings here. You know, we do all kinds of things with... One, one thing that you do, I wanted to mention, uh, because you talked about fads. I don't know whether this is a fad, but it is relatively new, an escape room. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I that's, was that's, mentioning to someone, that's, this is my wife's new thing, is yeah. oh, we're going to do an escape room. We're going to yeah. do an escape room. And I saw that uh, you're doing an escape room. Yes. And uh, for those who don't know, this is where you get clues to try to get out of this room. So right. uh, that, that's something that um, we I'm have, sure a lot of people In the wanna... basement of the old hotel, which Gene might get to that when we talk about the paranormal parts, where we frequently uh, have seen a ghost. And I won't go into the ghost thing, because she will, but... Uh, I've never seen a ghost here, and I've been here 35 years, but I've had so many of my employees see the same thing that even if I'm scientifically going to analyze that, um, there must be something going on to it because you can't have 25 or 30 people see the same thing, and, and, it, and, and some of them knew nothing. But in that area is where the escape room is, where, uh -huh. where, we, where we frequently – one of the places we So you don't know whether it <laughs> – You might hear a thump in the escape room not know what's yeah, going yeah, on. You yeah, may it's, think it's, it's part of the whole escape yeah, room yeah. thing when it's really not. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But I don't know if escape rooms are fads, but it's a lot of fun. Well, and, it's uh, just kind of started. Sure. I, yeah. You know, it's, I, everywhere I, I see nowadays well, that uh, it's, it's something that people are doing. and Enjoy. The entertainment business for years, and you just never know. I thought karaoke was a fad. I thought that, come on, that's going to be gone in two years. Uh, no. It's, uh, so escape rooms might be around for a good long time. Real quick, because I did want to bring this yeah. up. There's so much history here that we've been talking about. And actually, the table in which our broadcast equipment is on right now, uh, the table is over top of a hole. I mean, oh, there yeah. is a, uh, it's not actually a hole, but it, because it's covered up. Well, hope but, those guys don't fall through. Yeah, yeah. I, know, I was thinking the same thing. But I understand that there is a possibility, and it's been investigated, that Booby's Brewery was a stop on the Underground Railroad. Yes, well, the hole underneath your uh, broadcast equipment there, it goes down about eight feet, and it goes to a pile of, of just dirt, uh, loose dirt, very loose dirt, meaning you could just put your hand in it if you wanted to. Well, dirt that's 50 feet underground on its own, in its natural state would not be loose. It would be very hard packed. It almost, the dirt down here that is original in its original place is as hard as rock. So we know that that's fill, meaning that wasn't originally there. Somebody put it there. We're pretty sure when they made these catacombs that they hollowed out the cave larger. And instead of hauling all the dirt upstairs, we think they simply dumped it into and thereby filled another cave that's below here. So... Uh, and we don't know if that cave is just one cave or maybe it goes on. There may be more than one cavern room. They used what they needed of the cavern system here to make the rooms that you'll see now when you're here. But what was remaining, they didn't care about. So they just filled it. It's leaving it up to dig it out. Now, the old timers of Mount Joy have said that back in the legend has it. You know, there's, people didn't keep a lot of records of underground railroad activity in many cases. But they say that the slaves were hidden in the caves of Mount Joy, of which this is a part. So a cave would be a great place to spend the day when you were uh, an escaping slave. You needed to hide all day and you traveled at night. Uh, but a great place because you could go in one place, come out another. If, uh, if I don't know a, if they describe it as a great place, but well, I understand what you're saying. As, a good hiding place. As far as not getting caught by bounty yes, hunters, yes, uh, yes. you want a good hiding place. Uh, <laughs> so there's a very likely, very good possibility. Now, what we hope, never no way to know, but when we dig this 
cave open, which is going to be a pretty major job, uh, we may find some remnant evidence of either you know prehistoric habitation or uh, underground railroad activity. You know, there's likely to be something left behind that might be datable to the early and mid 1800s. When are you going to yeah. do that? We'd like to start in March. Okay. Well, this coming March. We'll be following that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Sam, I want to thank you very much. Sam Absolutely. Allen's the thank owner you. of Boobies Brewery. Thank you very much my for pleasure. being with us it's today. A, my pleasure to be here. <laughs> You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by the team of cardiologists, surgeons, nurses, physicians assistants, and rehabilitation specialists from Pinnacle Health Cardiovascular Institute, part of UPMC Pinnacle, delivering a broad range of traditional and highly specialized procedures. Welcome back to a Smart Talk road trip. We're broadcasting live today from Boobie's Brewery in Mount Joy. Actually, the catacombs, we're about, uh, what, about 43 feet underground right now. Uh, and in what was, as you just heard, uh, an old cave. And we're going to be talking more about brewing and the history of brewing in Pennsylvania. Did I say brewing? How about brewing? Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, in in uh, just a few minutes. But we do want to thank uh, our support. And uh, our supporters for Smart Talk Road Trips are with us all the time. Roof Advisory Group and Michael's Motor Cars. I want to thank Roof Advisory Group and Michael's Motor Cars for making the Smart Talk Road Trips possible. And as I said, probably the most unique location that, that we've, we've ever come from today. Uh, you know, Aloysius Booby bought this brewery in 1876 as the U.S. was in the midst of a lager brewing boom, as we mentioned. Pennsylvania, though, has been historically home to dozens of brewers, and we're going to talk about that history with our guest today, Vincent Zangi. Yep. Okay, and he's the head brewmaster at Boobies Brewery, and Lou Bryson, author of the books Pennsylvania Breweries and Tasting Whiskey, as well as numerous articles in trade and consumer magazines. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks. All right, so Lou, let me talk to you first. Um, as Sam was, was discussing earlier, describing earlier, especially when uh, the United States went through this lager beer craze in the, in the 1800s, Pennsylvania had these neighborhood breweries all over the place. How many, and kind of describe them, were, were they like this? Uh, well, first of all, I mean, dozens is, is understating it. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, I was trying a, to be cautious. That's good. That's good <laughs> idea. Um, I mean, there were probably dozens just in in Philadelphia or Scranton or or Pittsburgh. Um, Lancaster actually had quite a few. Um, there was a uh, uh, the Lancaster Historical Society put out an article in the mid '60s that I still have a copy of, uh, an in depth history of brewing in Lancaster County, and just just that is has a, a ton of stuff. Um, brewing started in in Pennsylvania in the 1600s. Um, went on up. I mean, we had the first lager brewery in America, in Philadelphia. John Wagner had a brewery, which was actually just about exactly where the old Ortlieb's Brewery mm. uh, grew up in, in Philadelphia on American Street. Ortlieb's, for those of you who don't know, was a pretty <laughs> big brand in Philadelphia. Went out of business in the 1980s? In the 80s, yeah. 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 Um, I mean, I, re- I remember drinking it. Yeah, me too. Uh, yeah. I, went, I uh, actually grew up in Lancaster. I went to Franklin and Marshall. I drank a lot of those old beers back in the day because they were pretty cheap. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and you, you really hundreds of, of breweries in Pennsylvania, and some of them grew to be more than just neighborhood breweries. Um, they talked about Lancaster being the Munich of Pennsylvania. It was uh, really? The beers were shipped up and down the East Coast. It was. It had a really good reputation. Um, H. L. Mencken, the sage of Baltimore, wrote about Lancaster beer. Mm. So, what kind of beer? I mean, was there more than just lager? Well, you know, <laughs> the, the question is, what were because we know there were German brewers in America before John Wagner started making lager. What were they brewing? We we don't really know. Um, the um, David Yingling, um, the the founder of the brewery. What was he brewing in 1829? We we don't really know. We we suspect that because lager yeast had not come across the Atlantic yet, that it was essentially an ale brewed lager, mm-hmm. um, probably a darker beer. Um, 
but but we don't know for sure. I mean, and and this is the thing. Going back, and I face the the same thing with whiskey. People will, will pull out a, a really old bottle of whiskey that has survived since pre-prohibition. Just for example. And you taste it, and you're like, wow, that's what whiskey tasted back then. No, no, it isn't. (laughs) It's changed. You've changed. Nobody really knows. I have to say, Lou, that's the first time on this program that someone has said that's what we face with whiskey. uh, (laughs) Might as well face it. (laughs) So why was beer, I mean, obviously the German influence had a lot to do with it, but why was beer, even from the 1600s, such a staple here in Pennsylvania? (laughs) There's a, um, there's a quote I have in, in some of my books. Essentially, whenever Europeans arrived in a new place, they started fermenting something. Uh, <laughs> I mean, a lot of it had to do with um, simple food safety. Water, water was not safe. Uh, milk was good for about half a day unless you kept it in the cow. Um, fruit juices went, either went bad or went to wine. And I, I remember a time in my life when I didn't think there was a difference. I, I've grown. <laughs> um, but, but beer was safe because you boil it. Right. So that's, that's a, an integral part of the process. You boil water and you kill all the nasty stuff. And they didn't know that. But they did know that drinking beer didn't cause any problems. So beer was healthier than water. The first time I visited Mexico, I stuck to that and only drank beer. I was in Mexico Mexico just a few months ago, and basically it's the same thing. Stick to beer, yeah. It's the same thing, yeah, or something else. By the way, we have a live audience today, and if any of our audience members would like to ask a question, make a comment, step right up to the microphone and and ask your question. So, uh, you know, we've obviously gone through a lot in the last uh, 400 years in Beer making in Pennsylvania, beer drinking in, in Pennsylvania, kind of brings us up to today. And there's a whole, in the last 10 years or so, there's a whole new way of, or maybe I should say it's changed because now we have more than just the large brewers yeah, that, really Sam, that Sam had mentioned earlier yeah. that you have a lot of people making their own. But you have a lot of neighborhood craft beers being made, too. What happened? Um, well, one of the things that happened was um, Uncle Sam. Uncle Sam sent a lot of people overseas, including a lot of people to Europe after World War II. Um, well, a lot of people in World War II, obviously. But um, they went over there and they tasted this stuff. And for a while, it was enough to get it imports and, and buy it in your the Class 6 stores on, on base. But then... A couple of guys out on the West Coast thought, why don't I make this here? Um, Tom Pastorius, who started the Penn Brewery in Pittsburgh, worked in Germany. Uh, I, I forget exactly what business he was in. It was something in finance, I believe. But he worked over there, and he thought, this is really good. Why can't I make it here? And back in the late 80s, he started. Um, and, the, you know, the, the hardest part of it was, you know, there was almost this, this sense that, no, you can't do that. You know, beer comes from a big factory. Right, uh, you can't right. you can't make it on a small. You know, people didn't want to invest in it. There wasn't equipment. They had to they had to make their own. Or, I mean, in the case of Penn, go to Germany and buy used stuff. Mm. So, Vincent, uh, I see you nodding your head here. Is you're the the head uh, brewmaster here at uh, Boobies yes, Brewery. Uh, so I assume you have a, a lot of history knowledge as well. But let's talk about today mm-hmm. before talking about uh, some of the the history as well. That I hate to say craft. Beer craze because I, it's, it's. I don't beyond necessarily that. like to use the term either. No, uh, but it, it, it's still we still kind of have to we use it as a necessity to kind of segregate the more uh, another almost cliche term artisanal uh, form of right, brewing right, as opposed right. to just to separate us from the macro breweries who are making your standard American adjunct lager that we all got so familiar with because those those were an- another reason um, those were the only uh, breweries that survived prohibition because they had enough money and they could also. Um, repurpose their equipment into uh, just mainly malting. It ended up into uh, you know, uh, malt ice cream, milkshakes, and things like that. So those, those big breweries the, being the only ones that survived Prohibition, their biggest product was this plain, almost watered-down tasting, uh, nearly Pilsner-type American lager beer. Uh, but uh, as we were just speaking about, uh, about 1974, I think it was, when, uh, when Carter allowed um, homebrewing again so folks could start making beer at home again. And so on a small scale, people started, here's where we get back into this, uh, this individual and almost uh, township-based renaissance of brewing. So once we realized that we could start making beers other than what we were 
what we were given by the large macro breweries, um, people started kind of going crazy. What else can I make? What else used to be brewed that is not brewed anymore? And that's one of the things that I personally like to focus on bringing beer out here today. What are these kind of German-style beers to, you know, to tie into our heritage that may or may not have been brewed pre-prohibition that we don't know about anymore? I want to talk about prohibition in just a moment, but uh, we have uh, one of our audience members step up to the microphone and ask a question. Um, as an outsider, I'm originally from New York City. Uh, as a tourist, 20 years ago, we came down here, stayed at a very major, lovely resort, and w- with our three children, uh, wanted to go down for supper. And with dinner, we wanted to have a beer. Well, the lovely little Mennonite waitress said, well, I'm sorry, we don't have anything on tap. And, and we said, well, what do you have? And she said, oh, lemonade, iced tea. And I thought, <laughs> what? where are we? <laughs> Have you ever had any conflict with all the brewing breweries that have cropped up? Have there ever been any Bible Belt protesters about? Oh, most definitely. Been? Okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, the town I live in, I live in Bucks County in uh, Newtown, and uh, Brew Pub wanted to open in town, and the major opposition to it came from Quakers. They just they didn't want to. And that's wanna, today. That's that. Yeah, that's ten today. years ago. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they didn't want a brewery in town. Right, exactly. You, you get him, can get the, There you go. Go ahead. Go oh, ahead. I said even though William Penn, as a Quaker, had his own brewery on his estate. Well, the water is bad. The yeah, water exactly. Bad, water Sam. is bad. The water is bad. Right. Hey, you know? Okay, so I want to Sam, – Sam Allen's still here. I want to turn to you before coming back to Vincent. Uh, prohibition, okay? During Prohibition, what happened to boobies? I mean, uh, boobies go out of business. Well, like many breweries, as I mentioned earlier, had the brewmaster and his family lived at the brewery and often ran an inn and a tavern. Right. A lot of little breweries at that point continued to have the, they continued living in their little right. hotel building. And what they did here, and this wasn't unusual uh, on small breweries, is they continued living in their, their hotel portion of their brewery. And they, uh, they rented rooms still. They made food. Okay. Uh, Mr. Booby's son-in-law was running the place. Not unusual if the cops weren't looking. I mean, at least the feds weren't in town because the cop in town was probably as grew up with him right. type of thing. Right. They, was was served, beer, yeah. they were drinking beer. They were drinking beer. And they, uh, they used some of the equipment here if, briefly as a dairy, and they did whatever they could. Right, so uh, that's, Yingling, that's... Yingling made ice cream. I, a lot of people know that these days. But they did whatever they could. Some people made near beer, which is beer with, with they de-alcoholized yeah. it. Um, <laughs> so that's the public story. <laughs> <laughs> Some of your employees were telling me that uh, the word speakeasy has been used. Oh, yeah, well, that's what I said. Mr. Okay. Mr. Engel, right. Mr. Booby's son-in-law, was probably good buddies with a cop in town, and meaning uh, the cop would probably tell him when the feds yeah. were coming, you know, so that they could serve booze here. And so, yeah, they definitely served illegal. Now, the brewery wasn't operating, however. Okay. The brewery was already closed by that time. But uh, we have a, a hotel record. This is sort of a fun bit of trivia that uh, shows a fellow that came from Reading, Pennsylvania once a month, checked into the same room in our little hotel upstairs, and he always signed in as John Doe every time. <laughs> that wasn't We're suspicious. fairly <laughs> certain that he was bringing booze, that he was bringing liquor over here once a month. So the reason I ask that, Vincent, is because I understand that you have a speakeasy ale. Yes, uh, it's actually uh, it's a pale ale. We call it the speakeasy pale ale. Uh, just one of the things to play off you know, the heritage and the, right, uh, the, the right. history of this place. So yeah, it's, uh, it's an American-style pale ale that we uh, we playfully keep the name around. <laughs> well, again, I want to throw a little bit of history in here, but mm-hmm. how do you come up with your recipes? You said that you do like to, to uh, you know, pu- you're inspired by some of the older things. Well, uh, since I started brewing here, I've, I've been brewing for boobies for just a little over two years now, and... Um, uh, I didn't always, uh, my roots are not in traditional German-style brewing. I, I very rarely made lagers as a young brewer, as a home brewer, especially not having the proper equipment. So it's actually uh, inspired by working at Boobies to research and take my practice uh, into some of these more traditional beers. Um, and for those that I haven't known, I spent a lot of time uh, looking through things like BJCP guidelines uh, for historical components, what ingredients uh, would have been used and are still acceptable to be used in a particular style of beer. And I just take my experience and knowledge and, and try to compile a recipe that will fit those standards, but still try to make it my own and remain traditional at the same time. You're always experimenting, though, right? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I, th- I think any brewer, anybody that ferments anything, whether it's grape or apple or, you know, or grain, um, a, a, a consistent brewer is going to be 
always, always trying something new, always fermenting different ingredients, always you know trying new combinations of ingredients until you find, like I said, something that fits that style but still a little bit uh, of your own. Now, this is a broad question because there is so much experimentation in craft brew. Brews are so big today mm-hmm. that it's hard to say, oh, here's what someone likes. But I'll ask, in your experience, what do people really like? What don't they like? Well, everybody's got their own palate. Right. Um, I can definitely say we were talking a little bit about fads and trends earlier. Um, this IPA craze, uh, the hoppy, <laughs> hoppy beers. Everybody thought it was going to be a trend. Everybody thought it was going to be a fad. I don't know. I think it's sticking around. Um, I we, can sp- we, we were saying that in 1996. <laughs> uh, exactly. Just for those exactly. who don't know, an IPA is what? It's an India Pale Ale. It right. is, a, uh, it is right. a pretty aggressively hoppy beer. Uh, it is. There's always a definite uh, bitter characteristic from these hops. Mm-hmm. And for folks that have never had it, it's a bit of an acquired taste. A lot of people do not like it. Um, but those that do like it, the hop heads out there absolutely love it. Yeah, it's all um, they want. And, what, and honestly, if, if you don't have that kind of palate, but you, you kind of find yourself acquiring that taste, once you get there, you're always looking for darker, stronger, heavier, more, more bold hops. Um, but the IPA craze um, is, is not dying, and I can attest to uh, the, the amount of volume that our customers drink here. Anything hoppy will sell, in, at least in this town, very quickly. Uh, they also seem to have a thirst for uh, wheat beers around here. Mm-hmm. A, a Hefeweiss and a Dunkelweiss and Will will sell very, very quickly in this area. What don't they like? What they don't like. Well, there's always something that everybody's not going to like. Um, there's a very small cult following, and I think it's starting to grow uh, in sour beers, uh, styles that were not very popular up until the craft beer craze brought these back into, uh, into the limelight. Um, that's a very specific crowd of people that do enjoy them. Anybody else that's not familiar or tries them for the first time, they're pretty much going to say, I don't like sour beers. But that, that, that's a love or hate kind of thing. Let, we have a, a, an audience member who has yes, a question. Sir. Johnny, go ahead. Thank you. Uh, of course, in the early days, obviously, you do not have bottles and cans. And I was wondering if you could uh, talk a little bit about uh, kegs and other ways that they would store it and sell it. Good question. Okay. Well, uh, originally, uh, I, I want to say back uh, back to around the 1800s, or actually prior to that, um, the first vessel would have been either wood or even going back older, I guess, to, uh, uh, as Sam mentioned, Mesopotamia, we probably would have been fermenting and aging in something like a clay pot. Um, to bring it a little bit more modern to the origins of Booby's Brewery, everything here was uh, was large wooden barrels, and we still have uh, a lot of the original woodworking tools up in our cooperage shed where they would build and maintain the uh, all the equipment, uh, the wooden barrels, and the aging kegs, if you will, the, the wooden casks um, that were also used to deliver the beer. Those were made and maintained on site. Um, so m- m- most of it uh, here at least was wood, and you can see right around the corner from us here um, some of the original lagering tanks, which uh, capacity are... About a thousand gallons. We've got at least four of them still left. Are there boobies, uh, cans, or bottles? Bottles, yes. Bottles, and never okay. cans. Okay. Cans was more of a mid 20th century. Yeah, I just say that is fairly modern, really. Mm-hmm. Bottles go before prohibition. We have another question. Yes, um, I'm asking this question for a friend. Um, she has a daughter who is a freshman at Penn State studying food science. Her goal is to study fermentation because she wants to brew beer. So besides the classroom um, education, what other life experiences should she be seeking? And second, how long should I, I mean my friend, uh, <laughs> expect her to live at home after graduation? Okay, okay. That's a good question. That is a good question. Uh, well, school is a great place to start. Uh, with as many breweries that are, that are open now and the guys that have been around for 10, 20, 30 years and are well-established, um, we're looking for more and more uh, educated uh, brewers at this point. Uh, so uh, the great, uh, great place to start is in, is in the classroom, obviously, but uh, at home. You need to get a homebrew kit. Anybody that has not experimented with making your own beer or wine or cider at home, it is legal. Uh, it is not legal in the United States to distill, but to ferment, yes, it is. So I would absolutely encourage this person to go grab a homebrew kit, take a class at a local homebrew store, and just jump right into it and start experimenting and get hands-on right away. I don't know whether the friend uh, <laughs> can make that decision about when, when the daughter comes back. Hey, I want to thank you very much for being with us today. Vincent Zangies, the head brewmaster at uh, Boobies Brewery. Lou Bryson, author of the books Pennsylvania Breweries and Tasting Whiskey, as well as numerous articles in trade and consumer magazine. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being with us today. You bet. Thank Thanks. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. 
Welcome back to a Smart Talk Road Trip coming to you from the catacombs about 43 feet underground at uh, Boobie's Brewery on Market Street in Mount Joy. Beautiful location. And uh, we're having a great time here today as is our audience. And now we get into, well, I don't know. We're going to, Gene has some things. Gene Ellis. Gene Ellis is the great, great, or okay, one great, one great, great granddaughter, Valois Boobie. And the original ghost tour guide. So we're going to talk about the paranormal. But before I do that, I want to also mention, I want to thank our uh, supporters for uh, Smart Talk Road Trips, uh, Michael's Motor Cars, and Roof Advisory Group. Okay. Now, Gene, here's the big question. Everyone sitting in this room is wondering, is boobies haunted? Yes. Okay. There we go. There's a question. (laughs) All right. Now, how do you know? You told me. That you've never seen a ghost. Sam has told me he's never seen a right. ghost. How do you know that Boobies is haunted? Well, I got involved in the whole ghost story thing through the employees of Boobies, who knew that I was a great-granddaughter of Eloise Booby. And when I was working here as a hostess, they would come and tell me this happened, that happened. Maybe and what did you say to when they first came to I you? was interested. Oh, you, know, you didn't just you say, know, get back I'm the, to work. I'm the daughter of a funeral director. Ah, she's <laughs> the daughter of a funeral director. So funeral director and beer. Yeah, no. No, Par- I mean, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Mr. Booby also was a funeral director, right? At no. a funeral home? No. I thought they, the family no, no. the no. family had a funeral home. No, just my dad. My dad was his, grand, his oh, grandson. Oh, okay. I knew there was a tie in there somewhere. Yeah, all right. I'm no. getting, all right so the, right. the employees but, came to you yeah, and said they were yeah. seeing things. They, they had seen things. They had heard things. They had, had um, glasses smashing, things moving. They would hear things. Um, some, of, At least one waitress had a, f- a full body apparition appear to her in the hallway of the basement. Some of the bartenders in the um, bottling works had seen a full-body male run through the foyer. Um, and so I, I just gathered all their stories together, and I had enough to make a little book. And then when we uh, published the little book, Sam and I thought, well, why don't we give a ghost tour and tell the stories and take people where, around the property where it happened, where these things happened. And as it got bigger, then people who like to do paranormal investigations came here using sophisticated equipment, as everybody knows who watches any of those shows. They actually brought those things here. And the first thing that actually uh, convinced me was um, recordings of what they call EVP, uh, which is Electronic Voice Phenomena, recorded by Rick Fisher, who's Lancaster County's premier ghost hunter, as far as I'm concerned. He spent many, many hours here alone with his crew. And the recordings that he got here when it was very quiet, early, he would come early in the morning, so spirits aren't just here at night. Yeah, I was wondering about that. When do they show up? Whenever they feel like oh, okay. <laughs> well, It's a 24-7 well, job. Well, <laughs> he, did, he got some very... Odd recordings that were actually intelligible. That some of them that I've heard on the shows that I've watched and even um, in person are so distorted electronically that you can't really make out what they say. But somehow Rick has has a system where he can really pull out where you can pick. You can tell the the type of voice the person has the tone of the voice, and words that they're saying. So you actually have heard a couple of these, yes. right? Tell and, us about that. Well, um, one of them was uh, sounded like an old lady. Now, this was, as I said, it was just a voice recording um, saying, it's hell in here, and it sounded just like that. So obviously it wasn't me. I wasn't here when it happened. I always thought it, it sounded like it said, it's hell in here, but... Some people think it says, is Helen here? Um, Then there's a couple um, where you might just hear the name Carl, which is one of the people who lived here. Um, And the one that gave me, made my hair stand up was a a whispered male voice in two parts. And the first part of it is, only at midnight, and if I take Aunt Mary home. 
And it was a whispered, very, very genteel man's voice. And that kind of made my hair stand up because um, Mary Booby Donovan was the bookkeeper here. And if there was any reason to take Aunt Mary home after midnight, it could have been because they wanted to do something that maybe Aunt Mary wouldn't approve uh, of. <laughs> so that was one. That there are many others that others, um, you know, and, and uh, we had Ghost Hunters here in 2012. You did Ghost Hunters? I, I actually, it's on YouTube, by the way, if uh, you'd, li- you'd like to watch it. I watched the episode and when, they, when did, they were here. They got a very odd recording in German. Um, and we have had other things in German, too. I just don't know German well, but I know that um, it was recorded in a room where they had a candle lit, and it translated to put the light out. And Grandpa Booby was very paranoid about fire because in about 1896, the third floor of the hotel burned off. And when he rebuilt it, it was a flat roof, no mansard trim, nothing Victorian. And um, so he was... Um, very concerned about fire everywhere on the property. So, uh, you, well, I remember, and I'm, this is from the Ghost Hunter episode yeah. where they talk to you about because a lot of people, when uh, you know these investigators go out, uh, either they they're afraid of it, they want to get rid of it. No. Not in your case. What no. you were looking for was to find out whether these were actually your ancestors, relatives. Yeah. And um, if if someone if there's German, I mean German was spoken here when Grandpa Booby was running the brewery. He spoke to his workers in German, or it would be like a broken German. And he spoke German in the hotel to his family. You know, out in public they would speak English. Um, so um, when. <laughs> I'm, for, I'm sorry, were you asking? Well, that? I was just uh, you said you were interested in whether what has been heard and seen were your ancestors. Uh, yeah. yeah, I have ideas about all the voices that I hear that Rick Fisher um, recorded. I have ideas about who some of these spirits are that might be roaming the place. One thing about boobies, and I don't know if it's that way in every other haunted place, but we have a lot of elements here that contribute to hauntings. The main one being a limestone cane system with running water underneath. Really? Yeah. Yeah, the electromagnetic energy in the cave system can trigger, um, provides energy for the spirits to manifest. Um, And it goes straight up. I mean, it's not just kept in this room. It's straight up and right above here is the hotel. So I have found that the hotel is the most haunted places where you're going to have the most experiences, not so much in the catacombs. What about the guests? Have guests ever reported seen? Yes. And um, they have. I, I remember I was giving a tour once, and a girl on the tour started to feel sick. Um. And, and uh, it wasn't because of her dinner. Well, <laughs> <laughs> no, she started to feel really dizzy and, and uncomfortable and oppressed. And we were in the in the basement. And so her boyfriend said, I'm going to take her outside. And they never came back. Um, that is a uh, symptom of being susceptible both to electromagnetic energy and also the presence of a spirit. Some people are very, very sensitive to that. And um, so you had that. You had, you know, not Grandpa Booby so much, but his son-in-law, Henry Engel, who was my great-uncle, who ran a rather shifty operation here and dealt in, pro, you know, prohibition. Um, I don't think he was the best father, from what I understand. And um, his two children, who were both brilliant, uh, the boy was going to be a doctor. The girl had a Ph.D. in chemistry from Bryn Mawr. Uh, both became schizophrenic in their 20s and never, ever uh, were able to work. Mm. Um, can, and, I ask you, can I interrupt for just one second because I only have about uh, two yeah. minutes left. Uh, obviously, you're a true believer. I've heard a few people here saying, I don't know. I'm mm. a little bit skeptical. What do you say to people who say, ah, can't happen? Um. I just always say you can choose to believe or not to believe. That's the question. Um, And I 
believe because I have experienced things through the electronic investigative equipment. And I, you know, have had been convinced by that, by what I've heard, and sometimes what I've seen in people's pictures that they take. Orbs? Um, hmm? Orbs? Well, sometimes orbs, but sometimes, um, I know, you know, like there'll be a dark, a really dark, um, misty, shadowy figure above people's heads. Mm. Can That's I do something with all these candles here? It's almost like yeah. a seance. <laughs> If anyone is here, how do you how do you re, how do you refer to the ghost? To the ghost? Yeah, how do you get them to come out? Well, if anybody's here, would you like to speak? To say anything, show us any sign of your presence? What was that? That was you. Uh, okay, all right. Okay. They don't perform on command. I can see that. They, they do not give command performances, and that's the thing. That's what they because really should very, do. Yeah. <laughs> if they're in a dimension right beside where we are, and they are able to interact, they will know what we're doing. Now, some of them are just like recordings playing over and over and over again, and yeah. there's no, not really any interaction there. But some of them will, on occasion let you know that they're there. Uh, real quick, because I only have about 30 seconds. When you were talking about that conversation that you heard, you said it was a conversation that wasn't finished. What did you mean by that in about 30 oh, seconds or less? Only that they're like snippets of conversation. So my thinking is that, that, the, that the limestone here in the caverns acts as some sort of recording system. And that if certain energies are present, things play back. Oh. Jean Ellis is the great granddaughter of Alois Booby and the original ghost tour guide. Jean, thank you very much. Very interesting. Halloween season coming up, so this would be a perfect place to come. I want to thank uh, everyone from Booby's Brewery for having us for this Smart Talk road trip. Also, want to thank our, our uh, supporters who uh, make these road trips possible. Uh, they include Michael's Motorcars and Roof Advisory Group. Thank you very much. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's Smart Talk, when we'll be back in the studio, we're going to have a conversation about guns, but it it is not going to be your normal conversation about guns. It is not going to be good or bad. It's going to be about uh, trying to get some information out there that people may not know or maybe don't want to hear. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF. I'm Scott Lamar. Have a good day. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a trusted resource in our communities. Capital Blue Cross. Live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, committed to research that improves health, reduces recovery times, and brings new treatments and therapies to our area before they're available elsewhere. More information is at upmcpinnacle.com. 